Today on this edition of the Forest City Church Podcast, lead pastor Eric Parks has part three of the iHeart series. This message is titled, What's the Secret to Staying Married? So we are in a series about love, right? I know some of you walked into church and it was like your first time back in church. You got Carrington singing Al Green. You're like, where am I? In a real good place. Uh, We're talking about love. And and the reason why we're talking about love is because two weeks ago we kicked off the series. There is nothing more important than understanding what it means to love. Here's why there's nothing more important. Because as followers of Jesus, it is the command that he gives us. Remember what Jesus said in John 13 when he said, look, you've got to love one another. This is what he's asking us to do. Exactly as I have loved you. By this, by how we love, everybody's going to know you're my disciple. Remember? Not, not by what we know, not by how many degrees we have or how many memory verses we, we have in our minds or can spit out. No, 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 no. It's about how we love. Being so radically wrecked by Jesus' love that we go out and radically wreck a world with his love. See? This is what it's all about. And so... What our series is, is taking four words, the Greek words found in scripture for love and begin to define, well, okay, what does this mean for us? How do we go about this? And last week, you know that Steve taught us, if you, if you haven't, you can go online and you can catch up with his sermon, but last week, he, he began to unpack this idea of love as he looked at uh, storge. Well, actually, storge isn't in the Bible, but a storge is, which is the opposite of love, that's being heartless. And what Steve said about storge, being filled, like our heart being filled, not being heartless, but being full of heart, is that we learn how to honor. And he talked about three steps in honor. So today, we're going to tackle the second of the four, second of the four Greek words. I'm going to handle eros. Now, a little backstory on eros so you know what it means. Eros is the Greek word for sensual or romantic love, right? The term originated from the mythical Greek god for love, sexual desire, physical attraction, and his Roman counterpart is known as Cupid. So, in an effort to understand eros, we're going to look at relationships today. Now, let me say a few words about this. Number one, if you're not married... It's cool. Because what we're going to talk about in the next 20 minutes isn't really just about marriage. It's about how we exist in this world. This impacts so much of our lives. So if you're not married right now, look, you're not excluded from this talk. If you're someone who walks in here and you were married, maybe you find yourself divorced. Hey, listen, you are included in this talk. What we're going to talk about is foundational for sure, for making marriages work, but it goes beyond that. Now, for those of you that are married, you can thank me after the service because I'm going to save you thousands of dollars in counseling fees. Because we're going to look at how do we, how does Eros trickle into our relationships and how do we have relationships that don't fail? Now, here's a question. Why do you think relationships fail? Why do you think they fail? I mean, my guess is if I were to call us up on stage and we had a whiteboard, we could list a laundry of reasons why people get divorced. And normally when we say failed marriage, it always equates in our mind to divorce, right? 
A failed marriage is divorce. And we know, like, divorce is running rampant in our culture, and it's no better in the church than it is outside. About 50% of every marriage is going to end up um, divorced. But, but let, me, let me go one step further. What we're talking about today isn't divorce avoidance. Because the reality is, you never signed up in marriage to just avoid divorce. That's not the goal of your marriage, right? I was thinking about, I wonder what the goal was of marriage, and I began to think back on my marriage, and then I asked the staff, I said, hey, send me some marriage photos, and let's, let's wander back in time for a minute on some, some folks on staff, and I wonder when that younger version of those two, or these two, were walking down the aisle, do you think they were saying to ourselves, you know what the goal is? We should just avoid getting divorced, right? That wasn't the dream of these two, right? They were thinking, wow, you know what we need to do? We want to live a life together. Like when you're walking down the aisle, you're thinking of completing each other. Look at that. Like you're celebrating that we're going to be in this union and we're going to bring the best out of each other. We're going to root for each other. We're going to be each other's best friends and on each other's side. That's what every one of these couples are thinking. Thinking life's going to be better because we're together, right? So let me be really clear. That a failed marriage, and what we're talking about this morning, a failed marriage is any marriage that fails to thrive. See, if your marriage isn't thriving, then it's failing. Because that isn't what you were thinking about when you were walking down the aisle. Now, I'm going to tell you that when we talk about eros in this love, if you pay attention, literally, I'm going to teach you one thing. Now, you may not do it perfectly, but if you do this one thing, you will see arrows in your relationship. Some of you come in, you've given up. So it's, it's not savable. It's not possible. I'm telling you, there is one thing. There is one thing. You can step into this. You can move into this. And you will find arrows in your relationship. I want to start with this verse. If you have your Bibles, you can whip them out, but I'll put it on the side screen. Jesus Jesus isn't talking about relationships in this verse. But what Jesus is talking about can apply to every single relationship that we have. In fact, I think this is like a building block. I think it's more than a building block. This is like the cornerstone of relationships. Here's what he says. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. He says, do not judge others or you're going to be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. Now, I know in your life you've had somebody judge you. I know you've had it. Had somebody said something about you, look at you a specific way. In your relationships, I'm sure there's been moments when you're like, hey, don't judge me. I know I've been wearing these sweatpants for four straight days. Do not judge me. Anybody else had a moment when it's 10.30 at night and you're just hungry and you go get the ice cream and you look at your spouse and you say, don't judge me because I'm eating this ice cream and a cookie right now. Don't judge me. Anybody? No, just me. No, we've had moments where we go, hey, don't you judge me. And we, we think about this idea of judging. And I thought, you know, oftentimes we'll say, don't judge me. But here's the reality. If you're a human being, you're judging things all the time. You are. Like, you're just judging. Actually, this idea of judging 
It's sort of a neutral term. Now, we don't think of it that way, but think about it. You judge how much time it's gonna take you to get to church. Some of you didn't do very good. I saw you walking in late. You judge, like, you judge space, like, what's the difference between here and there? You judge how long it's gonna get to work. You judge, should I buy this thing? Should we buy this house? Should we get this car? Judging, this happens all the time. We are constantly, as human beings, making judgments. This is what we do. And what Jesus is trying to get at is not to say, don't make judgments. You're going to make judgments. What he's trying to help us understand is how do we make the right kinds of judgments? In other words, how do we become the right kind of judge? Because see, you are judge and jury. You make these decisions. You make up your mind. And Jesus is saying, well, what kind of judge are you going to be? I had a friend, Chad Brugman. He's actually going to come out here and teach this fall. I'm super, super excited. But he talked about what most failed marriages look like, what kind of judge most failed marriages have in them. Normally both people, and this is the way he phrases it. He says, we have judges who want mercy for me, but want justice for you. You know what I'm saying? Like, now I'd like to say that that is like a unique thing, but the truth is the way that we're wired as human beings, oftentimes we get into this all the time, where I want something for me that I really don't want for you. I want you to give me mercy, to love me, to accept me, to understand me, but when you cross a line, I want justice for what you did. And this is very, very normal. In fact, research scientists will tell you it's called a self-serving bias where you really believe in your heart that you deserve mercy, but that when someone else does something wrong that they truly deserve justice. And what, what's true is if that's the kind of judge that you are, you poison your relationships. This idea of Mercy for me and justice for you, it is absolutely poison for marriage. You see, eros, unfortunately, is seen as something that is lucky, right? That maybe Cupid comes and strikes and you fall in love, but then Cupid can leave and I fall out of love. But the reality is that that isn't true at all. That if you want eros in your relationship, if you want to love this way, we have to learn how to work mercy for me, justice for you, out of our relational profiles. You know, there, there were these, um, there's this book called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah were, was this collection of Jesus' contemporaries. It was written about 100 years after Jesus, but it included many of his contemporaries. And, there, and there's one, and many of the Jewish rabbis would have come up underneath the Mishnah and they would learn much of how they taught through the Mishnah. There was one particular part in the Mishnah that talks about judgment. It would have informed probably Jesus and his teaching, but it says this, judge each person with the scales weighed in their favor. Judge each person, your spouse, with the scales weighed in their favor. Now, now here's what's true about every single one of us. We have little scales in our hearts. 
We really do towards people. Little scales. That we make decisions all day long. We make judgments all day long. And what the Mishnah would say, what Jesus is trying to say is this. Listen, when you have a mercy for me and a judgment for you, you are pushing the scales in your favor. That's what you're trying to do. You're trying to push the scales in your favor. And undeniably, when we live a life where we are constantly pushing the scales in my favor, when it's always about mercy for me, justice for you, it's in my favor, this is the kind of relationships we tend to have. Or this is the kind of person we tend to be. Harsh and judgmental and egotistical and angry and resentful. It's all about me. It's all about me. However, when we learn how to push the scales in someone else's favor, as the Mishnah says, as Jesus teaches, actually something happens. When we begin to give our partner the benefit of the doubt, when we imagine a best case scenario for the words or the actions of our spouse, rather than immediately assuming the worst, when we learn how to do this, when we judge our partner in favorable terms, something happens. And and here's the reality. The reason why you don't want to be in a space where you're always pushing it in your favor, the Bible's really clear. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 2.1. He says, every time you criticize someone, every time, you're condemning yourself. You're condemning yourself. In an effort to protect myself, I'm actually condemning myself. It's interesting because in Jesus' time, this concept of judging in favorable terms, pushing the scale in someone else's favor, this was actually as important as visiting the sick, taking care of the widows. This was like a core competency. And as Christians, as Christian husbands and wives, it has to be a core competency of us. Learning how to move away from self-centered attitudes. Listen, the whole world is pushing the scale in their favor every single day. What makes us different as a church is when we take seriously what Jesus teaches us and then we begin to do it. Do you know how counterculture it is to be someone who's always pushing the scale in someone else's favor? It stands out like crazy. In your marriages, in your home, at work, at school. And it's interesting Because when you look at marriages, you begin to realize that actually the data proves this all out. Now listen, as followers of Jesus, God's word is enough for me. But sometimes I just like to prove a point. (laughs) Sometimes I like to say, hey, you know, actually it really does work. I'm not just saying this stuff. So, you know, for for about a hundred years, the last hundred years, we've been looking at research science in a particular way. So I'm going to get a nerd for five minutes. I'm going to be a nerd for five minutes. I'm going to prove Jesus' point for five minutes through a little bit of research science. I want to tell you some research science. Is that cool? Can I be a nerd for five minutes? Look, this is how we, how we think about this, is how we've thought about research science for so many years is good is always the opposite of bad, right? So if you want to get a good marriage, what should you do? Get a bunch of bad marriages in a room. See what they do and do the opposite. Just don't do it there, no. They're like messing it up. No, that's funny, but you know, the truth is, this is how we've done so much of the advice that we give people forever. 
Like, it's like, if you want to understand for how to keep kids off drugs, study kids who got on drugs and do the opposite. If you want to study how to keep kids in school, study what causes truancy and do the opposite. If you want to have a good marriage, study bad marriages and do the opposite. And so for lots of years, we've been studying bad marriages and saying, let me tell you what's at the center of bad marriages. And this is sort of what's at the center of bad marriages. Center of bad marriage is that oftentimes in bad marriages that aren't thriving, They don't know each other. They don't know each other's passions, each other's likes, each other's desires. This is what research told us. So we we cooked up some things that says, so here's what should be true. Here's the advice we give. Love Love may be blind in the beginning, but a healthy marriage should be one where you begin to really understand your partner's strengths and their weaknesses and values, and you replace the initial rush of love some just common, good old-fashioned, I know exactly who you are. And this is advice that we've been giving because we, we looked at the good and bad scenario. Study bad relationships. They didn't know each other. They were, they were uninformed. So if we got informed about our partner's weaknesses and we weren't delusional, weren't blindly in love, our marriages would be better. They haven't gotten any better. Marriages are failing. And so some research scientists had a different idea. This was like in the last 10 years. Three universities got together and said, we got an idea. Maybe we should stop studying bad marriages. Maybe we should study good marriages. So they did. They got thousands of great marriages, self-proclaimed great marriages together. And they did one little experiment. They put the husband and the wife in a room. So it'd be like me and Chrissy, my lovely wife, right down there. We've been married 25 years, 25 years. Um, it's a miracle, right, babe? It's a miracle. You live with me for 25 years, it's a miracle. So they put me in one room, Chrissy in the other room, and they ask you to rate yourself on a series of qualities. Like, are you loving? Are you kind? Are you warm? Are you patient? Then they ask the spouse in the separate room to rate their partner. Are they loving? Are they kind? Are they wonderful? Now listen, Listen, you're going to see it all come together. It's going to be like magic trick. (laughs) What they found in these marriages that all of them averaged over 10 years in length, what they found was that in almost every case, this pattern was emerging that the husband would rank his wife significantly higher in areas that she ranked herself really, really low. And vice versa. In other words what actually is at the center of thriving relationships is blind love. Well, that's what the science would say because this person would consistently tip the scales in favor of his wife. Oh, no, no, you're not impatient. That's not true at all. You're one of the most patient persons I've ever known. It's just our kids. They're crazy, (laughs) right? You're not a bad cook. You're just, you love to experiment, right? You're not messy. You're creative. See, this is what happened. You you know, this is what Jesus is talking about, right? This is what judging favorably actually looks like. When we look at our relationships and we choose a generous explanation for their behavior over and over and over and over, that is tipping the scale in your partner's favor. See, that's, 
at the center of Eros. And I know already some of you are like, wait, 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 wait. See, you've already gone off the rails, dude. What you're telling me to do is just be delusional, be blind about my partner. Listen, that partner leaves stinky socks on the floor all the time. I can't get positive about those things, right? My partner doesn't do what I ask him, her to do. I can't get positive about those things. I know we get in these moments when we're like, it's just not possible. Eric, it's just not possible. Well, I was, came across Louise Verberg. She's written a ton about Jewish culture. She's a Christian author. But she was talking about this concept of learning how to judge favorably. And, and listen to what she says. It's on the side screens as well. She said, listen, over time, I started to realize that my first ungracious assessment was often no more plausible than the other favorable scenarios. You catch that? My scales of judgment were seriously askew, weighted heavily toward guilt rather than innocence. And that is at the heart of so many toxic marriages. We have gotten in a space where we just apply wrong motives to our partner, no matter what. And I know we go, well, they, you don't know, they deserved it. And they did this thing. We do this all the time. If they would, then I wouldn't. If you're married, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I know you've had at least 42,000 fights where you're like, well, if you didn't say that, I wouldn't have, because I do it all the time. My wife's like, praise God, he just admitted it on camera. We do it all the time where we're like, well, if you didn't, then I wouldn't. And, and what judging favorably is all about is beginning to understand, no, no, see, we do have a choice. That my negative assumption about the situation is oftentimes no more plausible than the positive. I actually get to choose. She goes on, listen to what she says. If the idea of judge favorable, others favorably is always applied, now think about this to your marriage, if it's always applied, it is impossible to have a critical or cynical spirit towards others. It's impossible. It's hard to gossip about people if you start assuming that they have worthy reasons behind the conduct that seems questionable. Think about it. It's difficult even to remain angry or bear a grudge against someone. Once you start thinking of what might have motivated them to do whatever you're upset about, tipping the scales in your partner's favor this is it. I mean, there's a lot of exercises that we have to go through as married couples to thrive, but I'm absolutely convinced that this is the core. Like when we start to get this right in our relationships, something changes and it's a learned behavior. You can teach yourself to judge in favorable terms. It's fully a choice because at the end of the day, you're applying your motives to their behavior. You're, you're applying it to that behavior. You're applying it to the dirty socks or the meal that you didn't like, the carpet that wasn't cleaned. You're applying your motives to it. Now, it takes two to tango. You gotta have two partners who are willing to tip the scales in each other's favor. But this is what I have begun to understand. The Bible says this. I know too often we're like, wait, well, first I want justice, then I'll start dispensing mercy. 
First, I want them to get it straight. Then I'll start, Eric, I'll start tipping the scale in people's favor if they start proving me wrong. That's what we do. This is what the Bible says. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy. Like, you have to go first. If you've been merciful, God will be merciful to you. You know, I thought, this lesson of tipping the scale in other people's favor, this isn't just about marriage, is it, really? I mean, we think about Eros and these relationships that we want too often, we think about them as they're almost spasmatic, that they can come and go. The truth is, this principle, learning to tip the scale in someone's behavior, this is something Jesus wants us to do, not just in our marriages, all the time. And I think we've gotten in a habit as a culture heavily weighting the scales in our favor. Think about it. You see it all the time. We don't judge favorably people who don't agree with us, who don't look like us, who don't act like us, who don't vote like us. What Jesus is saying, in my, in my house is different. Those that don't vote like us and look like us and don't act like us, those are the people we start pushing the scale in their favor. You say, well, how do you know that? This just sounds like a bunch of syrupy nonsense. No, 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 no. This is at the heart of our faith. This discipleship. Because you go back to the very beginning of my message, right? What did Jesus say? He says, I want you to love the way I love. So what, how did he love? You notice the song we sang right in to this message. Talked about Jesus on a hill that he created. Now think about that for a minute. On a hill that he created. He came down to this planet. Allowed himself to be put on a cross. For you and me who could never pay that debt. For you and me who honestly, for most of my 20s, was absolutely blind to who he could be. And he still paid it. Tell me that's not tipping the scale in my favor. This is what he did. And then he says, if you want to be my disciple, which you don't have to be. We don't have to be his disciple. We don't have to follow him. He said, if you're going to, you have to do like I did. Great. We know a bunch of stuff. Jesus is like, that's nice, but I want you to go do as I did. Well, but I come to church. Great. I'm glad you're going to church. But what I want you to do is as I did. Tip the scale in your partner's favor. Tip the scale in that boss's favor. You can't stand. Tip the scale in that friend's favor. Tip the scale in other people's favor. This is the gospel. This is how we are to exist, and I'm telling you, it's not easy. Well, going to the cross isn't easy, easy either. He, he's our example. And our challenge is this for City Church. Will we be a place that takes this sort of stuff seriously? Or will we just go, oh, that was a nice talk. He was excited. Wasn't that neat? 
Or will we go, oh, no, no, Jesus is saying, by this, everyone will know you. By this, by this, they will know you. By this, they will know this place. By this, people will come to know me. By this, if you tip the scale in people's favor. Will you stand with me? I'm just going to invite you in the next few minutes. We're going to sing a song about how we build our lives. And there's a couple lines in there that you'll see some real direct connection. But here's the reality. What Jesus is asking us to do as followers of his is to build our lives around this love, about this central theme, about this God who left heaven, came to this squalid earth, left his glory, came to this place to tip the scale in a bunch of dirty sinners' favor. That's what he did. And then, and then, it's not only that he did it for you, then he invites you in and says, oh, hey, by the way, you can go do that too. You can go out in this world and you can start tipping the scale in people's favor, tipping the scale in people's favor. This is what we're called to build our lives on. And I'm asking you, I don't, you can go to any church you want to. You can give your generosity to any church you like in this community. Write it for someone else. It doesn't much matter to me. I'm asking you, do you want to follow that Jesus? Because that's who I'm going with. I'm going to go follow him. I'm going to tip scales. I'm just going to try to tip scales. I'm going to try to do the best I can to tip scales. And I can't imagine what would happen if we had tens of thousands of people that were just looking scales to tip. Tails, scales to tip. Scales to tip. Could you imagine what would happen? Could you imagine why people would be like, you people are crazy. You people are crazy. And I'd be like, we are crazy. We are absolutely crazy. This is what we want to do. This is the place we're trying to build. A bunch of people that love Jesus with everything. They have radical love that wrecks us. And so I'm just asking as we sing this, ask God to examine your heart. Who's the relationship that you need to begin to tip the scales quickly? Might be your marriage. Might be your daughter, your son. Might be a coworker. But ask Jesus in this song to show you. You've been listening to Forest City Church lead pastor, Eric Parks, with the message, What's the Secret to Staying Married? You can watch the online version of this message by going to youtube.com slash Forest City Church. Thanks for listening.